So what is our task as the church? What are we about? Why did God leave us here? Why didn't God, when we, I mean, Christ has prayed, He wants us to be with Him. So why did we not immediately after we were converted and believed and became the child of God, why didn't He just take us to heaven to be with Him? Because He has a task for us. He's called us to this life. And He has given the church a task. Now it's interesting that there is even a church. It's interesting that, that God has used. So he, he takes the people who have believed. And he's, he, he is, basically He unleashes them on the earth. He turns them loose upon the earth. And then He uses them to accomplish His purposes in the earth. The greatest thing that you can learn about God is that God has a purpose. Sometimes we just think things happen, right? What we would say, a little phrase in English, willy-nilly. It just happened. And we just happen to get in on it. But that's not true. God has called us, His servants, His people, surely His preachers. He has called us to a task. And of course, the simplest way for us to understand that is just to go to the Great Commission. Matthew 28, beginning at 18. So this is our commission. This is what the Lord has taught us. Now, He taught immediately this to His disciples there. And and they had to wait for power. But He gives them well this commission. He tells them to wait you know, and he would endue them with power. So he, there he is. He spent six weeks, forty days with them, and they. He is going. You know, he, he's going to be brought to heaven. And so here's what he says: the last words to them, the first words to us. And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying. All power. Now we talked about power in the last session. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. That word is dunamis in the Greek. But here is another word for power. Sometimes translated authority. All power is given to me. The word is exousia. All authority is given unto me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world or the end of this age. Amen. So we can take this apart. We can look at this. Now we could go many other places too. But here it is, concise. So we take this apart and we see what is our task. Well, the first task 
we could say is missions and evangelism. That is the first one as it is presented in this verse. Missions and evangelism. Because he says, as translated or in the King James, it says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations. Now, go ye therefore seems like an imperative. You remember your English grammar. An imperative is a command. Go ye. But in the Greek, it is not an imperative. It's, uh, it's, it's more participial. Going. As you are going. Because we are going once. Now, I hear people all the time say about, you know, that... Uh, and sometimes it's criticism of the church, you know. And they say, uh, well, we must go beyond the walls of this church. We cannot just be in the church. But that's so obvious... It's so silly to have to say, no one lives in the church. No one comes to the building of the church and lives there. They come, they're taught, as it were, they're fed. But then what do they do? Then they go back. They go to their homes. They go to their jobs. They go to their schools. They go to whatever vocation, calling God has. They are going ones. That's what we are. We are going ones. But our lives have been so transformed that every aspect of our life is about Christ. It's just not religion. It's just not something we do on Sunday. We live in Christ. In fact, what does the Apostle say? I'm sorry. What does the Apostle say in concerning, concerning Christ? In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. We live and we move and we have our being. So we're going once. So as we are going, then here's the imperative. Here's the command. Teach all nations. Now the word there for teach is not the common word for teach in the, in the Greek. The dosko is to teach in Greek. But this is the word that comes from disciple. It's the verb form of disciple. So it could be, and in some translations it is, disciple the nations. Disciple. Now what are you hearing the word disciple? You hear the word discipline. Discipline. It is, um, it is applied to, a, to one who, who is a student. A student is a disciple. Why a disciple? Because the student is disciplining himself under the teaching of his master. So we have this gospel. We must go out and teach it. And in teaching the gospel, we are discipling the nations. The word in Greek here, we get our word ethnic. Ethnos. Revelation teaches us that those who will stand before God who have been called out by this gospel of Christ are out of every tribe, kindred, tongue, and nations. So you go. 
Christ has unleashed us on the world. Now, what an amazing event. How many people were in the upper room at Pentecost? 120. And they're giving this task? What a... What a... It's very absurd. You think 120 people can conquer the nations? But it happened. Here we are. On the... Not the largest continent, but a big continent. In fact, United States of America, which is a big country, can fit into Africa with much, much more land left over, you see. This is a massive continent. I was reading the other day, just incidentally, I was reading the other day about um, the missionary in Zambia, Livingstone. Did you know that, that Livingstone walked across the continent of Africa? Now, the smaller part, Sub-Saharan, but he walked across it more than once, preaching this gospel. Why would a man do that? Well, he was a going one. So, and he took seriously this, and, and he was a medical doctor, so he, uh, he, he was helping them physically, but he wasn't here simply to help them physically. Now, here we are in 2023, a man from the United States of America through this wonderful invention of an airplane comes to Kenya and finds in Kenya children of God. I'm not coming here to introduce you to Him. I'm here to encourage you to go on in Him. And so we're helping you. And much of what I'm saying to you, you already know, so I'm just emphasizing that. And I'm just saying that whether it be in the United States of America or whether it be in Kenya or Zambia or wherever it may be, Russia or England or France or Germany, whatever it may be, Mexico or Canada, Brazil, or Colombia, you find the people of God. Go ye and disciple these na- these nations. Now, how do you do that? By baptizing them and by teaching them. And so, we have been called and gifted to do that. So you'll notice in the text, go ye therefore, literally, as going ones, disciple the nation, and become, because these are participial, these are adjectives, you are baptizing 
ones, you are teaching ones. So that's what we do. We baptize and we teach, you see. Now, baptism is an act of worship. It is what we call an uh, ordinance of God. Now, some Reformed people call them sacraments. That they're the two sacraments. See, the Roman Catholic Church, you know, they put them out to many sacraments. Seven, I think. Is that right, Mark? Seven sacraments. And then, uh, but we understand them as two. And we as Baptists don't call them sacraments. Because that, that emphasizes, the word sacrament emphasizes that there is grace in them. But it is not grace in them. They are means of grace. They are channels of grace. Grace is only found where? In Christ. The Roman Catholics think, think that when Christ, uh, when He died on a cross, that He put grace in the church as if it were a bank. A bank of grace. Uh, you have banks, right? You have banks and you put your money in there, right? And when you need money, you draw money to yourself from the bank. Well, that's what Roman Catholicism thinks. That whatever Christ did on that cross, and they surely miss a lot of that, but whatever Christ did on that cross, and whatever grace He grabbed, or He, he was able to, uh, uh, to, you know, to produce, that that grace is banked in the church. And then therefore you draw it to yourself through these seven sacraments. But that's wrong. Grace is only in Christ. There is a means of grace. That means that there are things that God has given to us that helps us grow in this grace. And one of those is baptism. What is baptism? Well, it's an act of worship. And let me just say this to you. That the first work, it's not my first point here because the text takes me to another point first. But the first work of the church is worship. Everything else flows from worship. Now, we have two types of worship, right? You have corporate worship where we come together. Corporate, body. See, the body comes together. But also there's private worship. And private worship is... Um, must precede public worship. If, if you're just simply worshiping corporately and not privately, then uh, you are worshiping religion and not Christ. Christ moves you to worship. You are a worshiper. A true worshiper of God. And so we worship every day. Now actually it's kind of interesting that the word for worship Pros cuneo. Pros cuneo. Now I know that's Greek. It's going to be very hard for you to write that down. Pros in Greek means toward. Cuneo, cuneo means it comes from the noun. That's a verb. It comes from the noun for dog. For dog. So you come before the Lord in worship. You come before the Lord as a dog. How does a dog greet its master? 
Dogs are interesting animals. It doesn't matter how many times you leave a dog in a day. When you come home, he is so or she is so happy to see you, right? She comes, she wags her tail, and she comes to you, and she licks your hand. In fact, you have to say, stop. But licking your hand, kissing your hand, that's what worship, that's the picture of worship. We come to God as a well-trained dog, loving our master and delighted to see him. And we come down before him. As you can run that right through the scripture, when people came to Christ, for example, in chapter 8, the leper of Matthew, Matthew chapter 8, the leper. When the leper came to Christ, what does the scripture say? He came worshiping. They translate it in King James worshiping, but really he came bowing down to Christ. It's worship. That's our work. And we see it in this text. Baptizing. We use baptism, or, or the Scripture teaches us, to use baptism as the introduction into the church. You see, we've developed all kinds of religious habits. When I was a child in a church, they preached the gospel. They called us to Christ. Now, they... I'm afraid some of those preachers didn't know quite the full implications of what they were preaching. But they called us to Christ. And so there I was, an eight-year-old boy sitting in the congregation. I don't remember what the preacher was preaching, but I do remember being compelled to come to Christ. Christ spoke to me. There's an old preacher, he's dead now in heaven, but, but in America, Adrian Rogers, many of you may have heard of him, very famous preacher. And one time he told a man, he said, uh, God had spoken to him. And the man was surprised. He said, well, was that in an audible voice? You know what I mean? Audible voice? And Pastor Rogers says, no, it was louder than that. You know what I'm talking about? That loud voice that cannot be ignored. God teaching you, calling you. Well, we baptize. Why? Why is that the first entrance into the church because it is the declaration of what has happened to you. It's a declaration of what has happened to you. And what has happened to you is, is you have been identified with Christ. So it points back, baptism points back to the crucifixion. What happened at the crucifixion? Christ died and Christ was buried. And Christ rose again. For the grave could not hold its prey. 
that yielded to him. So baptism shows that, right? Here you are dying, being buried, and rising again. Now, not only does it show what Christ, the gospel... So in baptism, what do you see? You see the gospel. And these ordinances, you see Christ. Right? And the Lord's Supper. You see, you do... How long are we to do the Lord's Supper? We do that until He comes again, you see. We do that until He comes again. You do show what? And you remember that scripture there in... 1 Corinthians 11, 1 Corinthians 11, you do show the Lord's death till He comes. Okay? So it says, we, we are identifying with Christ, you see. This is our experience. We have died in Christ. <laughs> He must be liking my preaching. He's sitting there crowing. Uh, okay, so so uh, we have died in Christ, right? When Christ bids a man, when Christ calls a man to come to him, the theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer picks this up and writes a book, a whole book about it. When Christ calls a man, he calls him to come and die. Die to self. That's what we say. So here we are in baptism. We're ready to be baptized. And we stand before the church and we're saying, we have died to ourselves. And we have been buried with Him. And the Scripture says, if you've been buried with Him in baptism, then what's going to happen? You shall raise, be raised with Him, right? You're to be raised to Him or with Him. Usually my preaching just runs them all. <laughs> but, but anyway, that's quite an interesting... I've been in Mexico a few times when chickens showed up to the worship service. And uh, so that's nothing new for me. But we have died, you see. That we might be raised again. So that's what the baptism showed. That's why a, a sprinkling, you know, sprinkling water. When you die, you don't just have a little dirt sprinkled on. You're buried, right? Completely. So, and, and this is a confession of faith. So since a baby can't confess faith, you shouldn't give the baby the symbol. But when someone is called to Christ, indeed has died to themselves, has been buried with Christ, see, then we raise the newness of life. That's our testimony. Our baptism is our testimony. You see, it is the confession of, you must proclaim Christ before men. You must profess Christ before men. The first act of that in a worshipful way in the church is to be baptized. And if a man's unwilling to be baptized, then he, uh, he's unwilling to be identified with Christ. But it shows one other thing. 
It shows our blessed hope. Because one day, you will die. Unless the Lord returns first. Then you'll be raptured out of here, right? When I was a young man, I thought I would be raptured rather than die. But now I'm an older man. Maybe I should be fully honest and say I'm an old man. I'm not dying. I'm probably not going to die today unless I might get killed with his driving. But let me tell you this. I have seen the lights of the cemetery. And for the first time in my life, I've kind of considered maybe I ought to get a place to be buried. But I figure this now, if you die, somebody will probably bury you. But we will be buried. But that's not the end. The blessed hope is what? That one day at the last trump of God, when the trump shall sound, the dead in Christ shall raise. And then we shall ever be with the Lord. Now it's a little tricky there in the Bible, right? We're... When we die, we're already with the Lord, but then the resurrection of the body will come and the redemption of the body. So some of that may be a little difficult to sort out completely, but that's the way all things are, right? So, let me, so let's just apply that to any passage of Scripture or to any doctrine. Apply that to the doctrine of Christ. Has Christ always been here? Well, sure He has. The Bible says... He created all things, and without Him not anything was created that was created. And not only that, but in Colossians, the Apostle Paul says that by Him all things consist, they're held together. But yet the Christ who was here is also the Christ who came. And the Christ who rose, and the Christ who ascended. So that means that Christ is not here anymore. He's only in heaven. Is that right? That's not right. Where two or three are gathered in His name, where is He? Where is He said? You ought to let Him speak, right? What does He say? He says, I'm going to be there. Now, is He just trying to give us a pep talk? Or is that reality? Where, he, where we are gathered in His name, He's in the midst of us. So where is he? Well, the Revelation, you know, the first few chapters, the first chapter of Revelation is kind of introductory, but the, but the first, you know, the, the next few chapters of Revelation talk about the churches who are the candlesticks. What is Christ doing? What is Christ doing? The Bible says he's walking among his candlesticks. Who are the candlesticks? The church of Jesus Christ. Christ is walking in his church. And he, then He gives to His church this. 
when you gather together, whatsoever things you bind on earth has been bound in heaven, and whatsoever things you loose on earth have been loosed in heaven. That's in Matthew chapter 16 when it comes to the establishment of the church upon the profession of Peter, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. Meaning the confession. It says it also in Matthew 18 when it comes to discipline. Whatsoever you bind on earth, see in 16 you've been given the keys to the kingdom. The church has been given the keys to the kingdom. And whatsoever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. And then it goes over and says it, Christ says it even more thoroughly and even more astoundingly in the 20th chapter of John, here's what He says, Whosoever sins you retain, they are retained. And whosoever sins you remit, they are remitted. Wow. That's a lot of power to the church. But if you look at the tenses and the Greek of what he is saying, then you see something even more astounding. Whosoever sins you retain, they have already been retained. It's a perfect. Whatsoever you bind has already been bound. What, what you bind on earth has already been bound in heaven. So you see the implication of that. You see the true nature of what's going on here. The true nature is Christ is leading the church to do His will. When we truly loose and bind, when we truly retain and remit, we are following what God has already done in heaven. Christ speaking His will to the church. Hallelujah. What a Savior. That's our Savior. That's the one with whom we are dealing today. This magnificent Christ. Well, anyway, I got carried away. So, so the point is, you see how this theology works, how these doctors... See, so he's, he's a reigning Savior, and yet he's going to come and reign. He's a forgiving Savior, and yet He continues to forgive. You see, it's thorough. It covers everything. It can't just be one little slither. Just like we said in the last session. Was it a hearing miracle at Pentecost or a speaking miracle? And the answer to that question is yes. It was both. This is the power of God. How magnificent is this power of God given to us, His church. And so we worship. Here in this text, the worship is baptism. But it encompasses everything. Again, what is the task of the church? The first task is to disciple the nations. The next task is is to worship. The third task 
is the task of education, teaching them. So we're going to educate, right? Teaching them to observe all things commanded. All things. So here is the teaching. Who are we teaching? Now it's interesting as you preach the Bible, teaching disciples that that preaching also calls sinners. It teaches disciples and it calls sinners. It's just so thorough, so magnificent. Every facet comes into it, you see. It's like a diamond. Why why do we put diamonds on our fingers or wear them around? Because it's such a magnificent gem. Because when you turn it, In the light, it has so many different aspects, right? Well, that's the gospel. And you will never, ever sound the depth of it. You'll never exhaust the wonder of it. When a person is born of the Spirit, they are like a baby. Is that right? See, Christ could have used any kind of metaphor to tell. But what did he tell, or to tell of his salvation? But what did he tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus, you remember he came in him, into him in the third chapter of John and said, We know that thou art a teacher come from God, because no man can do the miracles you do, lest he be from God. So he's smoothing him. You know, do y'all use that word? He, he's trying to win him over with flattery. But Christ ignores it completely and says, you must be born again. And Nicodemus says, what? See, we don't, we're not so stunned by his statement because we've heard it all, all of our lives, but Nicodemus was the first man in the earth to hear such a thing. You must be born again. And Nicodemus says, How can a man be born again? How can he be born again? Can he enter into his mother's womb a second time and be born again? And Jesus said, well, that which is born of flesh is flesh. You know the argument there. But he also insulted Nicodemus thoroughly. He insulted him. Thou art a teacher of Israel and you don't know these things. You have to be born as a baby. So there is a sense as Baptists, we do baptize infants. Not physical infants, but spiritual infants. See, circumcision in the Old Testament was given to the male when they were eight days old. That was the sign of that covenant. Because that was a covenant that had promises physical, right? Physical land. Physical air. But that covenant 
pointed to a new covenant that is a spiritual covenant. And Jesus says to Nicodemus, you must become as a baby. God must birth you spiritually. So now the new covenant is spiritual promises, greater promises. So we give them the sign as an infant. Not a physical infant, but a spiritual infant. So now these babies, you know the Scriptures, you must give these newborn spiritual babies, you must give them milk. Desire the milk of the Word of God, the sincere milk. But then later, the Apostle is saying in Hebrews, hey, it's time for you to move on to meat. So you see, so there's a progression, there's a growing. What did you know when you come when you came to Christ? When you were birthed into his kingdom? What did you know? Well, you did know that he was the Christ. You did know that. But I can tell you what you didn't know. You didn't know the full implications of what that means. So you have to be taught these things, right? So the pastor spends his time teaching the elder to teach. What's your primary responsibility? Well, you have to look at the apostles. Because let me just say, and I don't have time to flesh that out, but the role of the apostle and the prophet and the evangelist is now in the office of the elder. Sent from God? Are you from God? If you're not, quit lying. Are you from God? Are you an elder by the will of God? Or because you just decided you'd like it? What did the prophet do? I tell you in the Old Testament what the prophet did more than anything. Now occasionally they forecasted the future or prophesied the future as God revealed that to them. But what was the main task of the prophet? To represent God to the people. And much more than telling what was going to happen in the future, they were calling people to repentance because they were sinners. Right? That's what the pastor... He represents God to the people. And he's the evangelist, right? He takes this gospel. And he preaches. And this gospel births people into the kingdom. This gospel nourishes those who have been birthed. This gospel informs them what to believe. This gospel reveals the wonder of Christ to them. Teach. 
Now, there are commands to the self. You must come to God alone. So, you know, the Bible says that the straight and narrow is the way. The gate is wide enough for one at a time. One at a time. To walk into the kingdom. Though the way is narrow, the gate is wide open. And you must come yourself. Your husband cannot believe for you. Your wife cannot believe for you. Your mother, your father cannot believe for you. Your sons, your daughters cannot believe for you. You were called to Christ. So we have to teach our people of their responsibility. 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 says, Casting down imaginations and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. And bringing into captivity every thought to the obedience of Christ. Every thought. So we must teach our people the Word of God until they began to think the Word of God until they began to think the thoughts of God. But there's also commands to family. A command to the father and to the mother who are Christians. And, and I don't have time to go there, but you know, in Ephesians 5.22 about the husband and the wife. And then it goes on to say that the father must raise his children the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Here are commands to the family. This gospel gives those commands. And then there's commands to the church. 1 Timothy 3, again at verse 14, talks about how you should behave in the house of God. We must teach. And of course we'll have, surely, uh, I, is that the next sermon, I think, about the house of God and how we should behave, how we should organize ourselves in the house of God. Well, that comes from this gospel, doesn't it? And then there's commands concerning our society. You have a responsibility to Maru or to whatever community you live in in Maru. And you have a responsibility to Kenya because that's where God has you. Do you think that God has put His people, has called His people out of the world in Kenya for them just to continue to live as if they were still in that world. He's called us from the world, but He's put us back into the world. 
Now, there's really two words there. One of the words in the book of Revelation is the word, and you can read it in translations that say, they that dwell upon the earth. That's actually one Greek word, which means a down dweller. Ones that they'll, you know, that dwell down. Their roots are in the earth. We're not that. The Christian is called a parokeo, which means a side dweller. We don't dwell in the world. I mean, in the sense that we're of the world, but we're kind of beside the world. Grabbing people. Right. Unto, and how do we grab them? With this gospel. And we are to preach this gospel and teach this gospel to the politicians and to the civil servants. Why? Because Jesus says this in Matthew 5, the great sermon on the mount. You're the salt of the earth. You notice? He doesn't say the salt of the church. You're the salt of the earth. But salt that's lost its savor, where will it be salted? Well, it's no good. So if you, you know, they cast it out and men trod it under their feet. If you don't live in this world as a child of God, if you don't as a pastor teach and preach to authority, as we would say, to power, then you are salt without savor. And you will be disrespected of men. Now let them love us or let them hate us. but never let them ignore us. For we are the salt of the earth. And they will be offended by us, but we must not give them personal offense about, by being arrogant or by being um, rude. We are to speak this truth in love, not because we want to win arguments, but because we want poor sinners saved. So we must say to political leaders, you want, you want Kenya to be blessed of God? You want Meru to be blessed of God? I think we came in and we saw a sign, I don't remember what, county it was but it says this is a county that prospers that's probably just political rhetoric because <laughs> you know what it, if a county's prospering you wouldn't have to put signs up telling people would you no I've sat before senate committees and I've warned them against going against God's law because God won't bless it. I sat in a politician's office one day. I'm trying to think his first name, his last name was Newman. But I sat in his office and I said, if you don't vote 
to protect the lives of babies if you don't vote down this abortion bill God cannot bless you his first name was Jewel and I said now I think it's representative I've said representative Jewel or Newman I prayed for you he says thank you Thank you. I said, but if you vote against this bill or for the bill, I think the bill was, maybe it was for protecting babies. I said, if you vote against this bill, I'm going to pray against you. And he went, oh, don't pray against me. I said, I will and I promise you that. You know what he did? He voted the wrong way. And you know what happened? He was never reelected. Now the guy that came in after him was just as bad. I don't know. But I hope he remembered that young preacher that told him he was praying against him. We must not fear their faces. <laughs> You're the light of the world. A city that is set upon a hill cannot be hid and men don't light candles and put them under bushel baskets. Let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify God which is in heaven, your Father. That's not easy preaching and that's not easy living. But we must pity these poor sinners and live before them. Well, I could say a lot of other things, but we've got to go. The last point, this would be point number four. So I've given you the major points. Your task is mission and evangelism, disciple the nations. Number two, the task is worship. We looked at baptism. Number three, it's education, self-education, family education, church education, and civil or society education. And then the last point, number four, our task is charity. We must give. Whatever God puts in your hand as an individual and as a church, you must hold it loosely. What do you have that the Lord has not given to you? You must hold it loosely. You must not be greedy and selfish with it. For God has put it in your hand to be used for His glory. Yes, even the way you spend your money should be to the glory of God. So here's what the Apostle tells Timothy. 1 Timothy 6.17 Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded. You know any rich people? I know a few. And they're high-minded. They think because of their riches that they are something. We should teach them, don't you be high-minded and don't you trust in these uncertain riches because rich today, poor tomorrow. But you put your trust in the living God. 
who gives us richly all things to enjoy, that these people that you are charging may do good, that they may be rich in good works, that they may be ready to distribute, willing to communicate. So they're ready. So God gives some people money. What should they do with that money? We need to inform them. I can tell you what they should do with it. They should help their fellow man with it. They surely should help their brothers and sisters in Christ because charity begins at the church, right? It begins there. So whatever God's put in your hands, then you must be willing to give. And it's been my experience. If you're willing, if you're not willing to give and to tie a hundred shillings, you surely won't be willing to give and tie a million shillings. Whatever the Lord gives you, hold it loosely, always ready to give it back to Him. One day a woman, it was like four o'clock in the morning, and I was living in this place where there was a number of houses around us, and at four o'clock in the morning, this woman was knocking on my door, woke me up. I went to the door. And she said, Pastor, I have to get to work and I have a flat tire. And there's a man who will fix my tire if I give him $10. And I don't have $10. Would you give me $10? I'll pay you back. I just so happened to have $10. In cash, I told her to wait. I went and got it. And I said, I'm giving this to you. You said you'd pay me back. I don't want you to pay me back because if you lie to me and you don't pay me back, then I will have a bad feeling about you. So I'm giving you this money. If you want to pay it back, then give it to the work of the Lord. So she left. Earlier, or later, I should say, that morning, I'm in my office across the street from the church. And a man that I knew came to my home and talked to my wife. He says, I was led of the Lord to give you this $100. I'm not going to give it to Brother Kerry because I know he won't take it. I'm just going to give it to you. Please take it. Now, I'm not making a ministry out of that. I'm just telling you what God does. You cannot out-give God. And He has told us. What has He told us? Prove me, try me, and see. Well, I would never have done that. You think I would ever go before God and try? I would never do that. But He told me to do that. He's the one that brought it up. And see if I will not open the windows of heaven upon you. Now you do, you know, and pour out a blessing you can't receive. You do what is right because it's right. But it's been my experience that God always blesses that which is right done in His name. It is our responsibility. We are in the earth to help relieve all the issues of the earth 
as God moves through his church. And we're not doing this through political means, but we're doing it through gospel means. I wouldn't want to be a politician. That would be a step down to what God has called me to be. Pastors, this is your task. Go do it well. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our time. Thank you for the attention. Thank you for those who have heard. Now make us, oh God, we pray today. Make us more than we were so we can be greater than we are. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.